This is Power Views at TruthWorks Network. Thank you for being with us. Reloading the truth. The truth must be spoken more than once. I'm Tony Brown, executive producer of Black Journal. Welcome to Black Leaders 73. This program has been pre-recorded, and you will not be able at this time to phone in any questions. The questions that you hear were directed in some instances to specific panelists, and in other instances they were not. Some of the panelists had not been advertised, and we do not have a number of questions for them. However, they have been encouraged to answer any questions, no matter to whom they are directed. For the next 90 minutes, we will present an unedited two-way communication system between you and our Congress of Black Spokesmen. We will be using television as an instrument of positive social reform, allowing Black America to question members of her leadership and make herself heard collectively. Our guests are Judge William Booth, President, American Committee on Africa, Hayward Burns, National Director, National Conference of Black Lawyers, Berkeley Burrell, President, National Business League, Stokely Carmichael, All African People's Revolutionary Party, Angela Davis, National United Committee to Free All Political Prisoners, Fannie Lou Hamer, Director, Mississippi Freedom Farm Cooperation, Nelson Johnson, National Chairman, Youth Organization for Black Unity, William Lucy, International Secretary-Treasurer, American Federation of Federal, State, County, and Municipal Employees, and the Chairman of the Steering Committee of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, the Honorable Percy Sutton, President of the Borough of Manhattan, the Honorable Louis Stokes, Democrat of Ohio and Chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus, Cinny J. Williams, Jr., President, National Association of Black Social Workers, and James D. Williams, National Urban League. One of our panelists was unable to be with us and wired us his regrets. The following telegram is from Mr. Stanley Scott, Special Assistant to the President of the United States. I will now read his telegram. Deeply regret that I must cancel my appearance on your show because of an assignment recently given me on behalf of the President. I would welcome the pleasure of being your guest at a later date. With every best wishes, for a very successful show, Stanley S. Scott, Special Assistant to the President. Indeed, there are many other black spokesmen, but our physical and technical capabilities have limited us. We do want the public to understand that our black leadership does include persons not on this panel. To continue to expose more of our leaders, we have invited a different group from our 1972 version. In selecting tonight's panel, we attempted to bring together a diversity of positions and philosophies held together by the common thread of concern for all black people. May we now have our first question. Black Leader 73, I have to tell you that we are recording your question and we need your permission to record it and to edit it and to put it on the air. You, you have my, my permission to do that. My name is Carl Smith from Lawton, Oklahoma. 
a pluralistic society in which all ethnic and racial minorities try to contribute to the mainstream and still retain their cultural identity is often advocated as a desirable goal for our country. My question is, is it a realistic goal? Is it possible? And if not, why? If you didn't understand that question, I can read it to you again. He said, uh, um, a pluralistic society in which all ethnic and racial minorities try to contribute to the mainstream and still retain their cultural identity is often advocated as a desirable goal for our country. My question is, is it a realistic goal? Is it possible? And if so, and if not, why? Well, that's one of the diversities, I guess, that we have among black people. I hate to say black leaders because I don't think of ourselves as black leaders. I don't think any people need leaders. Uh, we are working in the field and we're doing our job. But there is the diverse opinion. Some folks believe that you can work within the system and you can make the system work for you. Others believe you can't work within the system, you've got to have something else. I happen to be one of those who believes that although we have not progressed as we should have, and that the great masses of the people have not at all uh, been able to use their inert talents, uh, the talents they've got and that have, not been, that have been hidden by reason of cultural bias and examinations and all the rest that's happened to us through the years, that although the masses of the people have not tasted the success that is available here in this country, still I believe that it is possible, if I didn't believe it was possible, to work within the system and to retain my own cultural identity in spite of what's happening, uh, I, I would have to give up my job. I'd have to give up my various positions and organizations that I belong to. Uh, I'd have to say, well, down with all organizations connected with this uh, government. But I look upon this government as being one of men who can be changed if there's enough pressure put upon them and if the numbers that we've got together, that black people have and related people have in this country, if we put our numbers together, we can overcome uh, the, uh, the forces against us. Uh, otherwise, I, I couldn't exist in this country that way. I would, I would think that uh, what uh, our brother Judge Booth said is correct. The only question would be what kind of change do we want? I think everybody would be for that society. The question is whether or not it could come about under the present system of this government or whether that system must be changed. I, for one, believe that it cannot come about under the present system, a capitalist system. That system must be changed. I believe that. And uh, I think that if we, if we have the same objectives, then it doesn't make a difference where we work. As a matter of fact, a man working to change the system with that objective in mind can do very much inside the system once he doesn't lose sight of his objective. Uh, an example that comes to mind is that a few years ago, it was found out that one of the advisors for President Thieu was working for the Viet Cong. I do think that we make a mistake if we talk about this in terms of absolute doctrine, we talk about it in terms of black people and integration or black people and separation. It seems to me that that's a false dichotomy that has been set up in terms of the way in which the debate is discussed. The real issue I feel for black people is one of empowerment and one of redefinition of the way in which black and white people are interacting in society. I feel that's what we must be about. Well, I think that if you consider the fact that this system, this capitalist system under which we're living today is designed in such a way that nobody except a privileged few can 
attempt to express themselves or contribute to anything, there's no doubt about the fact that we have to talk about revolutionizing the system before anybody can, can uh, live in any kind of human uh, fashion together. I would just like to point out the fact that uh, I have seen with my eyes societies where people of different colors have learned how to live together, each maintaining their own cultural identity, but each uh, fighting to build and to continue to construct a socialist revolution uh, together. I was in Cuba not very long ago, and uh, I saw with my eye, own eyes how black people, um, brown people, and white people have reached the point where they can work in harmony towards the building of a uh, socialist society. Any other responses? Let me just maybe add to what Brother uh, Brown said over there just a moment ago. I think the, the, the key question is that certainly it's a good idea to work toward a, a, a total input by all, all, I suppose, ethnic groups in our society, blacks and what have you. But the key thing is whether or not you have a sufficient amount of power within yourself to affect the system when the system is, is working against your vested interests. Uh, in, in school some years ago, we were, we were taught to think of, of America as a melting pot, and I think the current administration has proven that there are ethnics who are unmeltable, because even though they are invisible, they are still there to identify with their own vested interests as a people. I think as black people, we've got to become concerned, first of all, with what our vested interest is in either preserving the system or changing the system. And once we make that determination, then the direction that we have to take uh, is, is clear for us. For instance, if you look at the various arms or branches of government, they represent different interests, uh, yet there is none that represents our interests. Uh, for instance, the business interest is represented by a branch. Uh, you will never find that branch you know, going contrary to what the interest of business happens to be. Uh, yet there's the labor interest, uh, and only here lately have we found some differences there. But every segment of our society that represents a power you know, lever is represented there, except uh, people, and particularly black people. And I think it's, it should be, we should be about the business of A, coming together, not in specifics as to what our, our interests and goals are, but certainly in generalities in terms of what we need to exist in this society. Let me ask a question about your comment. Would, would it be correct to infer from your comments that, that you would suggest uh, some attachment of a power mechanism for black people to the governmental apparatus as, as a solution to the empowerment of black people? Uh, I think what I, I'm, I'm getting at is the, the, is the acquiring of power within the black people themselves to affect the system in any way it needs to be affected in order to produce on behalf of the interests of black people. I'm not saying we should have a black agency. That's, that's, that's not what I was referring at all. I'm saying that every other ethnic group in our society has by some means or other acquired the power to move out of their depressed or oppressed situation with the exception of black and brown. Uh, I, I think what I'm saying is that whatever that power has to be to, to move the government or move local structures. That's what we need to be about. And I think the, this, the vested interest should be the basis of our movement. Mr. You know, America really is an ethnic society. And I live here in New York now, though I come from Texas, which 
And New York has always been talked about as a melting pot. It really isn't a melting pot. We have Jews, we have Italians, we have blacks, we have Puerto Ricans, a variety of other cultures that live side by side with each other, not always happy with each other. But if we're talking about change, whether it's a change of the style of the government or an absolute change in the nature of the government to a socialist society, whatever other society, I think the thing that is fundamental to it, if we as black people are going to talk about change, one of the first things we need to do is develop some unity within ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that all black people have to speak the same language or have the same philosophy, but we have to learn to communicate, and I think we are, in a large measure, learning to communicate with each other. And we've got to develop coalitions with others because we are a small minority. We have great power, however, if we can unite our minority with other minorities because there are other groups of people who would wish to move in the same direction as we wish. So it doesn't make me any difference whether we're going, if I thought tomorrow we could stage the revolution and the revolution would succeed, I would give leadership to it. That is a revolution by whatever method. But at this structure in our development, I believe the kind of revolution that is going to take place is a social revolution without bloodshed. And if this is to be so, one of the first things that must be accomplished is that black people, poor people, must unite themselves and then join forces with others. Well, now, Harlem has been a barometer for a number of years of perhaps black feeling across the country in terms of mood. What do you see, what direction do you see the mood in Harlem going in? I'm not too sure that Harlem has been the mood of the country. Harlem is one of the most volatile places in the country. When I travel to other places, uh, I'm amazed at the amount of unity. We have unity in Harlem, unity in one thing, that we're different. Uh, many of us are different. Uh, we have more nationalist organizations. We have all of the organizations you want to perceive of uh, are, many of them have their facets in Harlem. Uh, no, I don't think Harlem is the mood. Harlem is a very sophisticated place. Sophisticated in the sense that we all understand the need for others of us to exist. So I could not use it as the barometer of America. Be but if it should be the barometer of America, I think it would be good but I'm afraid that it is not. Mrs. Hamer, um, do you see changes in, since you're from the, right in the middle of the rural South, do you see uh, any trend there in terms of black people moving toward unity, moving away from unity? Uh, just generally what is going on in your area of the country? Well, I, I, do, see, I do see more unity because uh, the power structures in the South are forcing us to have more unity. You know, there have been a class split with the black community. That's being moved because we are finding out whether you middle class or no class is no different. As long as we black, we in the same boat. And that's forcing us to be together. Uh, because, you know, we've seen what is happening in our schools, you know, like if a principal was a principal and was moved and become assistant principal, his job, if he's black automatically, if he become assistant principal, his job automatically is to carry toilet tissue from one school to the other one and load up the bus. So he's finding that it's no different in us, and he's forcing us to get together. And I think that the change will come because we have to, there's nothing handed to us on a silver platter, and we have to work together for a change in the South. Congressman Stokes, uh, does, did your election as the new chairman of the Congressional Black Caucus indicate a new direction 
And if it did not, is there a new direction for the Congressional Black Caucus? Well, what we had to do immediately after I assumed the chairmanship was to try and evaluate our role. Uh, we found ourselves at that time being 13 black legislators out of a body of 435 congressmen and uh, having formed uh, a black caucus for the purpose of trying to alleviate the conditions under which poor and black and disadvantaged people live in this country. We had to try and evaluate that role in terms of, of 1973 and the United States Congress, particularly in light of the present administration in Washington. As we evaluated our role, we realized that we sort of grew up overnight. And uh, we immediately tried to be all things to all people. And uh, for a period of 18 months, we conducted a series of conferences, a series of hearings uh, around points of interest and concern to black and disadvantaged people in this country. And uh, after we had developed all of the hearings and the conferences, we realized we had a great deal of data collected a great deal of uh, proposed legislative solutions. And so we realized that we ought to get out of the business of conducting conferences and hearings because we had the, the data, we had the specifics with which to work and propose legislation which would get at some of the solutions to some of these problems. So consequently, we decided that we would try and make the emphasis of the caucus that of a legislative thrust, that is to add a black perspective to that legislation coming through the United States Congress, particularly uh, in light of our work on committees, where we can fashion amendments to legislation before it even comes to the floor that would add a black perspective to that kind of legislation. And so it's, it's with this kind of a emphasis or thrust that the uh, Black Caucus attempted to change its direction. Uh, I'd like to ask um, either Mr. Williams and or Mr. Williams uh, since the uh, National Association of Black Social Workers is definitely interested in services for black people, poor people, and the Urban League is definitely in the business of institutionalizing services, how do you see the recent budget proposals or the appropriations for these service programs affecting black America, specifically during the summer months and, and on into the, to the years? Well, the, the way I view it, the current Nixon uh, administration policy is creating or will create a critical condition in the black community. Uh, they're cutting back on key services in the area of uh, daycare, welfare, uh, scholarships for students to attend school. Many students would not be able to attend the uh, open school enrollment program, and etc. But even more importantly, and the Currently in the black community, despite the <coughs> statistics uh, that have been pro projected by the Nixon administration, you see, we made a survey in both Harlem and Watts, and we came up with these statistics that something like 40 to 50 percent of blacks that are unemployed at this particular time right now. Now, with the current cutback, this is going to create even more unemployment. In fact, some statistics have already been thrown out by some of the black group that something like 200 or 300,000 black, pe uh, uh, black people working in the poverty program will be affected, that are currently employed, that will be affected by the job cuts. So this is only compounding the current uh, unemployment situation that currently exists now in the black community. So I think that we are now past the repression stage. We're in a critical point, because not only does this exist in Harlem and Watts, 
exists throughout the major urban areas in the city. And I think that uh, as black people, we're going to have to begin to speak out against this uh, current trend because it's having a drastic effect on the black community. Well, <clears throat> Tony, to respond to that same question, that um, we do regard the budget cuts as uh, disastrous, uh, not only in terms of the actual dollars, but the type of philosophy that uh, these cuts have unveiled, that uh, we're talking, well, let's just deal for a moment with the housing programs. <clears throat> we have to admit that some of those programs did not work, but some of those programs did not work because there was fraud involving government agencies, involving the private sector of the country. So what happens, the programs are cut out and the poor people are penalized. In other words, that uh, we are being victimized because someone else has victimized us. And um, the whole question of the cuts deals with the type of philosophy that uh, says the country has done enough for poor people, so now we'll move on to something else, that uh, we can abolish poverty with the stroke of a pen. And uh, so therefore, that these programs are no longer needed. And anyone that uh, needs these programs are really freeloaders uh, whom we can do without. So uh, we deal not only with the question of the dollar amounts, but the question of the type of philosophy that's trying to, well, that is, is being uh, exemplified in this type of approach to the budget. So I think that that's the main thing. Thank you. I just want to make one, one point about the whole budget cutback thing, as we see it. And I think, again, we see a rather, rather magnificent PR game being done by the Nixon administration. Because the nation as a whole assumes that the, the cuts that are taking place are one to eliminate black people from the rules, from the welfare rules, to make life easier for the taxpayers out in, out in, out in the hinterland. But if you really track the statistics and, and see exactly who is benefiting from the programs that goes down, you will find that, that generally uh, two-thirds of the people who receive benefits are white and the other one-third being black. Uh, in terms of those who are receiving direct public aid or public assistance, you will find that the number increases are something like one out of four. And I'm not a, a social worker, but I, the, just the pure and simple numbers indicate that. Uh, what has happened is that out in the Midwest, where it's becoming you know, acceptable now to, to assume that discrimination is a way of life, uh, the, the, the administration has convinced people that what we are doing is, is keeping your taxes down, keeping those programs uh, we're taking those programs out, rather, that have contributed to the inflation and all this other foolishness. Uh, I think what we have to do, and I think there's a tragedy that some of the so-called liberals who have participated in these discussions before are not speaking out on the issue now, but it's being left to black leadership to deal with the whole question of budget cutbacks. And I think that, that, that there's a real need to raise a level of awareness across the country, because we even got some black folks who are talking about, yeah, well, we should be phasing down these things. Phasing down got nothing to do with it. If you cut back on the social program at the same time increase, increase the defense budget, when we're supposed to be winding down our involvement in Southeast Asia, there's something out of balance there. And that Tony, I, I don't think, let me just piggyback what Bill Lucy said. You know, there cannot, we should not have a discussion, there should never be a discussion of welfare without some explanation to the public of what welfare really is. Lockheed is getting welfare. People who live in the suburbs, Penn Central is getting welfare. We pay taxes. The, pardon me? We pay taxes. Exactly. We pay taxes. They're not only getting welfare, but not paying any taxes. But when they get it, it is called a subsidy. And of course, we could go along and, and give a really uh, description to all of the things that are being done by our federal government, both here in America and abroad, that are in fact welfare. But Mr. Nixon and his crew are not talking about eliminating any of that. They're talking about expanding that. Well, let me ask this. 
in his uh, explanation as far as he's gone to date President Nixon when he appeared on television explaining uh, the Watergate situation as he saw it, did you sense that he was implying a reordering, a restructuring of priorities? When he, when he discussed, didn't he say something to the effect that he was going to be a little more sensitive? No, you want to know what I sense? I sense that there was a desperate man trying to cop a plea, and then he even said a prayer for us at the end of it. No, I didn't sense that he was talking about reordering priorities. I sensed that he was trying to get through a very bad night. And I think also that the uh, critical thing about that was that he never really got to the substance of what they were dealing with. That what we got was a lot of rhetoric, a lot of waving of the flag. And then you're supposed to go away feeling that Watergate, uh, Watergate is just going to disappear. And I think that uh, it was an uh, unfair trick to play on the American public. Well, you know, we are. It's one thing, I'm sorry, it's one thing, that is the only president in the history of, of my time, and I'm 56, that can talk an hour and never say nothing. But we also have to ask ourselves what the real meaning of that Watergate affair is. I think it's important, especially for those of us who are, are here this afternoon, to recognize that if, if the Republican Party will go that far to sabotage the Democratic Party, to sabotage that kind of opposition, uh, what have we already been uh, experiencing insofar as repression is concerned, and what will we as black people have to face in the future? Because there are many of us who... Uh, feel that not only the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party as well, is committed to upholding a system of exploitation and racism. If you look at the McGovern campaign, McGovern didn't even raise the question of racism. And he was supposed to be the far left wing of the Democratic Party. So I think it's, it's important to see this uh, Watergate uh, scandal as being an indication of the real threat of fascism. And I think, yeah, I think that's what, what it is, is an indication of the lawlessness of law officials and the abuses of state power at the highest level. You have to take it beyond the particular example, as Ms. Davis said, of Watergate to understand what's going on at all levels in our society as far as that's abuses true. of power by the government is concerned, particularly in political areas. If they're doing this against the established opposition, what are they doing against black people? What are they doing against political activists? What is happening with the statutes that are being passed and the, the people who are being appointed to the courts? decisions the courts are rendering, what's happening at the street level in terms of the administration of justice, then you get the full impact of just how lawless these people are who are supposedly in charge of administering the law. When you look at the statutes the Congress has been passing, preventive detention, you see the no-knock, you see the stop and frisk, you see the Interstate Riot Act, you look at the, the Supreme Court of the United States consistently cutting back upon what we regard as traditional rights in this country, doing away with the non-unanimous jury. When you look at the street level, the level of violence, officially sanctioned violence that's going on in this country, the political implications of that. Look at what happened at, at Kent State, and Orangeburg, Jackson State, Southern University, at Attica where 43 people were killed. And you look at the way in which the grand jury is being used, and you look at the way in which agent provocateurs are being used, and if you just trace it all the way through, uh, what we see in look Watergate is just the right top now. of the iceberg. Look at what's happening in Wounded Knee right this moment. I think we could talk for an hour and a half if we yes. wanted to really expand on this point. Well, yes. I would like to... I'd like to say this point, that really, uh, the American people, you know, uh, ha uh, should shoulder the responsibility for what is going on now, you see, because uh, the Democrats are just alarmed 
of the bugging because it's affecting them. You see, uh, the Democrats, when they were in power, they were bugging uh, the black movement. And no one made any kind of outcry about that. The only thing now, uh, the chicken had come home to roost. And so now that they are being affected, they are now beginning to do the outcry. We have been crying about that for years, about the uh, invading of our privacy, privacy the bugging uh, during the civil rights movement, that it bugged Martin Luther King, that was well known, and no one spoke out against it. So what is happening now? See, it has been a revelation of what have been going on for years. And I think that uh, the American people now uh, are becoming more aware of what is going on. Now the fact is what they're going to do to begin to deal with it. But uh, I think that I want to go back to another point also. Uh, it, it's very important who the president has around him. You see what I mean? If he have, uh, let's say, crooks around him then who, who only have their vested interests at heart and not going to commit the time and the energy that is necessary to design programs to deal with blacks, then we are never going to get the kind of response from the federal government that we need. And I think that this is very important because these fellows up there are more concerned about stashing suitcases full of money. In fact, the $2 million and $4 million that they're stashing away now, that money can be going into the black community to help them to deal with some of the problems. And I think that until we begin to focus on these kind of situations, that uh, we're going to be missing many of the basic points. Stop even, John. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I yield to the other statement, my other brother, <laughs> the business sector of our community. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I keep hearing here, and I think you have to agree, would be that the uh, that the capitalistic capitalistic system in America uh, is the system that we that we have to deal with, and the problem with it uh, is that. Uh, we don't have any blacks operating in it. I wonder if we would have the same kind of uh, feeling about capitalistic, the capitalistic system. If we were the capitalists and somebody else was sitting outside, I'm, 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 I think we would begin then. I would be against it. I think that, well, Stoker says he'd be against it, and uh, that's not my sister. Well, no, 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 he's as long as he's doing the exploiting, there's something basically wrong. It's difficult, really, to say that uh, uh, that that people haven't been damaged by the by the free enterprise system in this country. The, the failure of our cities is probably a direct result of the failure of the free enterprise system to do something about it. When when big business begins to move out. And leave mm -hmm. poor people to solve the problems of poor people, and you've got a failure. Wait a minute, you can't. I'm sorry, but, All right. but, but uh, you can't talk about free enterprise <laughs> because there's no such thing as free enterprise. Okay. Capitalism in this day and age is monopoly capitalism. It is controlled by multi-billion-dollar firms, multinational firms. You know, it's controlled by the people like Rockefeller and Hughes and Dupont. Now, there's a real difference between. Those folks and, 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 the, and the black man or woman who decides to open up a grocery store on the corner, that is not capitalism. But Richard Nixon has been trying to convince us that all we have to do is to get a little grocery store on the corner, and then all of a sudden we have black capitalists. Well, if that's what Richard Nixon says, and I disagree with him, I'm not interested in, in, in small business as a, in, 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 that con in those constructs. Because, uh, and, it, and it's, it's amazing, when somebody says business and, and the person who's black is talking about it, immediately it conjures up uh, a little corner drugstore or grocery store or something. I wonder why it doesn't conjure up General Motors for me. Uh, it's not possible for you. Well, I don't know whether it is or not. I'm, you know, I'm, if, uh, I guess I'll quit working if you're convinced that that's true. But Maybe we I, I look at all the people around here, and we've got 
some, some organizational petitions that kind of keep us from, from operating together to change the system that we're all so convinced ought to be changed. When I ride in an airplane and look down and I see everybody protecting their turf, the national this is protecting this turf, these are all black groups, anything national is black, you know, National Association of Real Estate Brokers, the National Association of Funeral Directors, the National Insurance Association, they're all black. The white ones are all American. American. It's white. The white ones are all American. I don't know how that happens. That's because we know our nationalism. Well, but, but the point I make is, the point I make is when I, when I look down from an airplane, and I see each one of us as organizational heads protecting our turf. I said, what the heck? We aren't protecting uh, our turf. It's their turf. We don't have any turf. So if we don't finally come together to get a piece of the turf, then we aren't going to have any turf to protect. And I think it is possible in, if, if we begin to talk about ways of changing that. Stokely and then Nelson. Well, I think that the real question is that people are not clear on capitalism <laughs> because uh, Capitalism is a very vicious system, but what it does is it, it embroideries its viciousness with all sorts of elusive terms. For example, many of us would support capitalism because we actually believe that in a capitalist system, there's a chance for us to get the same amount of money as Rockefeller gets because we're told that under capitalism there is equality of opportunity. So that we feel that if this year we didn't make as much as a Rockefeller made, then we got to work a little bit harder and next year we're going to make it. But uh, if we carefully examine a capitalist system, we will see that it's based on exploitation because the viciousness of capitalism and the reason why once black people examined, we can never be for it is that under a capitalist system, the fruits of those who labor are enjoyed by somebody else. That is, those who do the laboring, the fruits of their labor, they don't enjoy it. As a matter of fact, we could say under capitalism that the fruits of the labor of the toiling masses are enjoyed by those who do not labor. And again, as black people, we have clear examples of it. If we were to get the fruits of our labor from slavery, just from slavery, all we got to do is go to Nixon and say, hey, look, you give us the fruits of our labor from, from slavery and we forget the score. We would be the richest people in the country. Again, because under capitalism, the individual exploits the labor of the people. Now, people get confused because... This is a capitalist system and it's a developed system. It's a technological system. So they combine capitalism with technology and development and they think that there is no other possible way to develop this rapid terms of development without going through the capitalist route. But certainly we have examples that show the, the opposite of that. China is a clear example of that. Cuba is, North Korea, North Vietnam. These countries certainly in, in Africa where countries have chosen the socialist path such as Tanzania, Guinea, Congo, Brazzaville, Algeria, we see that there is another way to develop and get the same type of things that we have under the capitalist system, but in a system that does not exploit, does not exploit each other, where all of us work and the fruits of our labor are divided evenly. Let me show you how backward capitalism is. It's a backward system. We could make two statements about capitalism to show how backward it is. We could, about America. America is a capitalist country. It's thoroughly capitalist, it's an imperialist country. But we could say that number one, America is the most technologically advanced country in the world. And that's an undeniable fact. It's a truism, it's a truism. America is the most scientifically developed country in the world. And right under that, we could say a second fact, which will show you how backward America is. We could say that America, in 1945, made for her people better cars than she does in 1973. And if you analyze this, you'll see how vicious the system is because here's America with its great technological skills, its great scientific ability, and rather than making a safe car for people that will last 20 years, which they can do, which they can do with the scientific knowledge that's at their fingertip, they rather take this knowledge and build a car which will break down every two years so you're forced to buy another car. Thus, you see, under capitalism, what they do is they take, they take their scientific skills and rather than using it for the benefit of the people, they use it to further exploit the people. And certainly this type of system is too backward. 
Yeah, I think I, Nelson was guilty. Yeah, I concur with the position that uh, Brother Carmichael is taking with regards to the system of capitalism. But really, I think there are two fundamental questions uh, that we need to get into. The first one was suggested when, when we started, like what is possible within the context of this system and the coming together of people and that type of thing, which I think as we begin to hear the things that people are saying about capitalism, it tends to start to answer that question. I mean, as we see the very construction of this thing. But see, to me, the, the most important question, well, well, let me put it this way. I think that we have to talk, one, about the merits of capitalism, which is what a lot of the conversation has been expended on so far. But secondly, and very importantly, is once we you know, begin to see that picture, we have to raise the question of how it is that we work within the framework of our existence in a capitalist system that we, I think, can agree that we oppose, at least some of us can. And then we get down to the nitty-gritty of the question that Mrs. Hamer spoke to about whether we're moving toward unity, the question of coalition, I mean, the question of the dynamics of day-to-day -day work on real problems that affect us as a people. See, because we could, we could hem and haw all day about capitalism and talk about how bad it is. Obviously, it's bad. And if you could tell me the 10 worst things in the world, I could tell you that they have been increasing in this country in the last five or six years. I mean, to give you some idea of the direction that this system that people are talking about is taken. I mean, the priorities are insane. There's no, there's no sane way of saying that people, you know, should take care of people, that people should take care of six people. I mean, things just happen based, again, on the way the system is set up. And so I think that that's, you know, like, you know, pretty clear. Uh, second thing is uh, the idea of how we work in unity. See, it's my notion that we have to take a second look at this question of unity because I'm not convinced that that is all that much unity taking place in the black community today. In fact, what you see on the one hand is a uniting of certain people who are beginning to agree on a direction to take. And at the same time, you're seeing the uniting of black people who are taking another direction. I mean, within the context of this system and within the context of our own communities. And in fact, you see, you see, you talk about the people being confused. Well, a lot of times the people wouldn't be quite so confused unless they heard a lot of the things that we're saying to them. Those of us who are supposed to be leaders, or at least those who put themselves in the position to say things to a lot of people. And you get more and more in the movement kind of a decay of a, of a real quality of, of honest and honestness. I mean, you get jingoism, you get, uh, you know, you get all kinds of, of performances. I mean, and these kind of things are put out against the background of the deteriorating situation that we're in. And that doesn't really offer any explanation to people. I mean, but then on the other hand, you have a, 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 a group of people beginning to address the question differently and to begin to see things like, uh, I mean, you could just list the problems, the problem of jobs, uh, the problem of education, and begin to draw some concrete analysis of that and outline some specific kinds of ways that people begin to function. So I just wanted to point out that you're really talking about two. One, capitalism, but two, and importantly, we haven't done anything to denounce capitalism unless we are able to devise some sensible way not for true. us to organize ourselves to resist not true, it. Not true. We have. We have. The, the largest ethnic group to, to condemn Nixon were black people. We've always been in the vanguard. We, we have done. We do that all the well, time. Well, there's a second dimension to what I was raising. Mm -hmm. 
That's the one you didn't address. No, but I think we must see it positive because I think it's undeniable that the, the desire, the, the desire for unity is more intense in the black community today than it was yesterday and will be more intense tomorrow. We must always see our movement as a progression. We understand there are negative factors in it, but we must look at the positive. But we I are think more we united. Have to address the negatives in Un order to rectify that. Understood, but I, mean, the I don't think that we can sit here and say that, you know, unity, you know, is growing yes. no. without ourselves addressing some of the factors that explain the disunity. But it is growing. May I, uh, may I uh, use the, the, uh, the prerogative of the microphone? Just one second, please. Uh, we have a number of questions, and we certainly want to have free exchange, but if we could limit our responses to responses and not speeches, then we can all have more time, and if we could do that. But I don't want to stifle anyone, but I, I do want to, if we can move. And I think... Uh, the mayor was next, and then uh, the congressman, and then maybe we proceed that way. After you first. I don't know whether the mayor of Harlem or mayor of Manhattan. Let me yield to the borough. Go ahead. Let me just say this. I really do not see it as being a question of capitalism versus communism uh, or socialism or any other form of government. Uh, I think we have to be pragmatic about what we're talking about. You're talking about living under a system that is committed to capitalism. Uh, it's not going to change to communism or socialism or any other form of government. That's not true. So what do you say, what do you do when you're, you're the oppressed and the repressed under the capitalistic form of government? You examine the system and you see how can you make changes in that system. Now the one thing that everyone seems to have forgotten here tonight is that what you're talking about under capitalistic form of government is power. This is the only thing that, that this country responds to is power, economic power and political power. And the only time that the system reacts is when you've got some of that power. And uh, as black people, we're not going to be able to overcome in a capitalistic form of system unless you do acquire both economic and political power, as every other ethnic group in this country has done. Now, obviously, I think the thrust in the 70s is in that direction. I think that... Uh, black communities are demonstrating uh, greater sophistication towards the fact that if they're going to change the system, they have to do it and work within the system. They have to do it by acquiring power in both uh, of those realms. There's no question about, about uh, the necessity of power to do anything. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's axiomatic. I mean, if we're talking about doing anything, I think the question is that the interests in which the, the power is addressed has to be a little bit more precisely defined. Um, you know, even within the, the context of our, our own community and the use of that power by various groups within the community. I mean, I uh, think, and I, I think, think there, again, we, we raise the essential question because there is a degree of power that we have and there's a good deal of, of disagreement over the way that power is being willed. Let me, let me go back, if I can, Tony, to the point that, that Lou, Lou makes, and, and I agree with it 100%. You see, what we generally do is, is we get caught up in an awful lot of theoretical discussion about how you change things when we're really based with a very fundamental problem. Uh, whatever change is going to come about is going to take some time. And rather than getting involved in dealing with the hereafter, I think we've got to deal with the here and now. And that is the fact that most situations, if not all that we're dealing with, are economic situations in terms of black and poor people. Uh, going back to the 60s, which so many participated in bringing about social change, which sort of made us legitimate people in the eyes of the law. Well, we've gone through that now, and we've got probably on, on the books as many rights as anybody else, except that we can't enjoy them by virtue of the fact that there's no economics in our pockets 
to allow us to do that. We can now go to the Waldorf, but we may not combine that, which is sort of a non-plus kind of thing. What has to happen, I think, is that people got to pull themselves into a group to function, back to what Lou says, as an economic block first. Secondarily, as a political block. And that calls for making all kinds of coalitions that I think as the chairman of the caucus stated one time, which is a coalition of convenience, because there are other groups in the society who may not be as oppressed as blacks, but are certainly as without as blacks. And I think around economic interests, around the development of political power, you can develop a philosophy that is neither communistic, socialist, or capitalist, but the question of pragmatic politics to acquire change. Did you want me to say? Tony, I've watched a number of times events such as this, number of blacks getting together to, who either are leaders or purport to be leaders, and their discussions, and we get off to the philosophical discussions of where we're going. And we began today by saying that we are not necessarily the black leaders, not just not necessarily, we are not the black leaders of America. We are persons who are sitting here. But I've talked about unity, a number of us have talked about unity. It is a hoped for thing. But let me just tell you that one of the things I really hope for, and I come from a background of family who moving towards socialism, who would like to see a socialist economy, but do live in a capitalistic society, would like to see changes take place. But one of the things I want most of all, which I should like to see in moving towards black unity, sometimes I think it is happening, and that is that black people who have different philosophies can discuss those philosophies. Each of us do that which we think is necessary to meet the common need. Those of us who wish to move towards socialism talk about socialism and not find the necessity in the course of propagating our philosophy, whether it be capitalism, socialism, nationalism, whatever it is, not find the necessity to destroy other persons who are given leadership in their arena. This is a much needed thing. I've not seen any attacks here today, but it is something that I think troubles a number of persons who are looking for leadership. I will take one response from Mr. Williams, and then we'll have to move to, to the next question. Well, on the uh, point that uh, Percy uh, was uh, dealing with the question of unity, that um, I'm firmly convinced that um, we run the danger of falling into a trick bag when uh, we concentrate on, the, well, when we devote so much attention to what the white man has defined as unity, that uh, it seems to me that we've got to define unity among ourselves. That, uh, you know, that, um, well, Berkeley can deal with one thing, that we'll deal with another thing. But uh, I don't think that uh, we have to get into the bag that uh, we have one spokesman speaking for black people, two spokesmen, you know, that uh, each of us has to do our own thing. And uh, the white community has, has yet not been able to deal with this. That they keep on asking what do black folks want. Well, I really don't know what uh, all black folks want. I know what I want. But I think that, uh, we, that we've got to realize that uh, unity uh, can exist at times, but it isn't necessary for all of us to be talking the same, uh, the same words, the same tone of voice all the time. That, that just won't work. You know, that, that when we deal with that ourselves, you know, that uh, we can get it together. But if we fall in the, in the bag that uh, I've got to follow somebody because they're the leader, you know, that uh, that's not going to work. Jimmy, you're not suggesting that I'm implying that no. we all ought to follow one leader. No, I'm not personally. Because I'm very no. annoyed by no. the suggestion that we ought to have one leader. That's right. Oh, I wouldn't be opposed so to it now. I wouldn't be opposed to it. I would not be opposed to it. All America is Nixon and uh, all China is Mao. I wouldn't be opposed to it at all if all Africa and all the people were one. <laughs> totally, as long as I could vote for who my leader would be. Oh, there's no problem, as long as he's representing the interests of the people. <laughs>
I may. No, but I can vote for him also. Still. Yeah, you can vote for him. You can vote for him. But what we have seen, we've seen, for example, in the electoral politics, how jive it is, because we've just seen that Nixon has been elected because of maneuvering and tricks and a lot of uh, nonsense. We've just seen that. So yeah, what I'm really talking about in the vote is a philosophical aspect. I understand. I'm that. really saying that I'll have some actual choice. But I'm not will. contrasting this with any other system. I know you will, but because the reason is America always makes it look that if you have another system, you won't have these freedoms that America has. Freedom to vote, you know, freedom to do this, freedom to do that. Or freedom to starve freedom and to, to suffer. Yeah. Exactly. I was coming to the rest of those. <laughs> Thank please. you. All right, may we have the next question, please? The name is Dialo. D-I-A-L-L-O. Mahmoud. M-A-H-M-O-U-D. And I'm calling from Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And uh, my question is to Stokil Kamaka, to Angela Davis, and uh, to President Nixon's special advisor, a whom I cannot recall the name. Okay. I want to know how they feel about uh, psychiatrist Francis Westlin's theory of... Excuse me, would you declare the dollar five for the last five minutes? Okay, are we on, please? Hello? Yes. Could you let me finish my question this before? capitalism. <laughs> well, we have to uh, collect for, you know, for five minutes. You're not being charged while I collect. Okay. Hey, what is that? A dollar five. <laughs> In Cuba, telephones are free. For those who have Sorry about that intrusion. That's okay. A dialogue Mahmoud from Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. And uh, Francis Westlin, who is a psychiatrist, uh, had an interview with Black Journal about three weeks ago. And uh, she has developed uh, an attractive theory of uh, black superiority of white people. Brother, would you just give me your question, please? Okay. And my question is uh, how does. Stokel Carmichael, Angela Davis, and uh, President Nixon's advisor feel about this theory, and uh, do they agree or disagree with it, and why? Let me attempt to paraphrase that. First of all, for the caller, as I stated, President Nixon's advisor was unable to be here. However, Mr. Carmichael and Ms. Davis might want to respond. He's referring to Dr. Francis Welsing, who is a black psychiatrist, who says that white racism is due to the fact that whites do not hate blacks because blacks are black. Whites hate blacks because whites are not black. And that racism is a reaction formation to something that you can't be and can't have. And that the state of whiteness is, in essence, a state of genetic deficiency and a state of albinism. Well, first of all, I would say that in trying to understand what racism is all about, we have to look at history, because as in the other institution, racism is a historical phenomenon. And it developed in conjunction with the development of capitalism. If you look at this country in particular, you see that the ideological, um, whole ideological network of racism arose in order to justify the use of uh, black slaves. The, the kidnapping of black people from Africa and the use of black slaves in order to lay the basis for an agricultural capitalism in the South and then eventually in, in order to provide for the capitalist system in this country a group of uh, 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 people who could be super exploited, who could be used as a, a reserve labor force. And I think it's important to recognize the fact that uh, 
the reason why the those who presume to be the leaders of this country have resorted so consistently to racism is because of the fact that it assists the ruling class to reap more profits. Let me just uh, give you an example. If you look at uh, the wage differential of black workers and white workers, you have something like $21 billion. If you add Chicanos and Indians and Puerto Ricans and other people of color, you get about $28 billion. Now that $28 billion means a lot to the capitalists of this country. But racism also serves another purpose, and I think it's important to understand this. Racism is used by the rulers of this country in order to convince white people who are also, the masses of white people are also exploited. They aren't exploited as we are, and they are not, uh, uh, there is a qualitative difference in the sense that we are racially and nationally oppressed, whereas white people are not. The white people, the masses of white people are working people, and, and the fruits of their labor are, um, are robbed by the capitalists. But you see, when, that, when the worker is focusing all of his attention, the white worker, on black people, and when he thinks that uh, the reason why he is now unemployed is because of the fact that uh, uh, you know, there's a, a, a system which gives black people uh, in certain industries job priorities, and when Nixon is able to, Nixon and all of the others, are able to sick white workers on black workers, then they have created a situation where uh, the white worker is not even going to think about the fact that he's being exploited by the capitalists. I mean, I think that the whole uh, question of dividing and ruling has been one of the uh, ways in which the oppressors historically have most efficiently uh, dominated racism serves the ruling class in precisely that way. And I think that right now, uh, in this country today, racism is perhaps the fundamental question we're facing. And white people have to understand this, because white people have to understand that they have to wage on their own initiative a struggle against the racism which is also used in order to make it uh, uh, much, in order to facilitate their own exploitation by uh, those who dominate this country. Well, I would, <clears throat> I would say that I imagine that my sister Frances had uh, a lot of uh, examples and certainly documentary facts to back up her theory, and uh, I wouldn't get into disagreeing or agreeing with her. What I would ask is, how do we destroy it? Uh, while that may be the major problem, I'll grant her that, let's say that is the major problem, white people are able to enforce racism through capitalism. That's how they amass their power. And uh, racism is really a question of power. That's all it is, is whether or not one race has, has more power to, to inflict punishment on another. For example, if a white boy wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he lynches me, it's my problem. Thus, it behooves me to build as much power as I can to protect myself against racism and also to destroy the base that gives the racist the reality power, the power reality to lynch me or to inflict power upon me. He amasses that through capitalism. Thus, it's my job to thoroughly dismantle that system, which will render him powerless. And once he's rendered powerless, then perhaps we can begin to deal with the question of, of, of racism. So I would not, I wouldn't, again, the question of, there's no doubt that the, the major problem that the black man faces all over the world is a problem of economic exploitation. There's no, that's the core question. The answer is, how do you get to it? 
I know that the only way you can get to it is through politics. You must first politically organize before you can amass the economic right. power. May we take two quick responses from Judge I, Booth and uh, Mr. I Sutton? I just and then go want to say that uh, much of the uh, attack here today, uh, this evening, uh, has been on Nixon. And I think everybody should know that we're not just on Nixon, we're on the entire society, the, the entire system as it operates. And I have had a, a chance to go to South Africa and to Namibia on a couple of occasions, and I've seen how our government not just the president, but the Congress, the, uh, uh, the courts, and everything else. Our government is sponsoring the racist regime in South Africa and in Namibia. I don't know, uh, I think the media is responsible to a great degree uh, because of the media of this country, the, the press, television, radio, magazines, all of it, have kept uh, from the American public the link between South Africa and the United States. Uh, I have uh, found in uh, my uh, dealings in the American Committee on Africa and otherwise that, for example, uh, our uh, Defense Department permits the South African Post Office to use our tracking station in Pretoria, South Africa, uh, for communication purposes and for communication purposes in order to deal with the black people of South Africa who are now rising up. There is a war on all of Southern Africa and uh, the United States is helping uh, the racist regimes there to win the war against black folks uh, by permitting free, free of charge, the South African post office to tack, to tack in to our tracing, uh, tracking uh, station in Pretoria. We are uh, using uh, the American government and all the American people and the only American tax dollars to help racism there. We likewise are uh, selling ships, sending ships, airplanes to uh, uh, Portugal so they can use them against black people in Angola and Mozambique. We're doing a great deal of these kinds of things. We're selling herbicides, and we're covering it up by selling these things to uh, private companies, which in turn turn it over to the government and use them against black people in South Africa. And I think that maybe uh, we ought to try to get these facts across to the American people, and to, particularly to the black American people, uh, so that they can use them uh, to dismantle, if we want to, and I, look, Stokely, you go your way. And I think we can go different ways we want to, but we've got to recognize we've got the same goal. And however way we each of us want to go, uh, we ought to recognize that we do have similar goals and we can work uh, toward the same end. Sir, I've always been for unity in the black community, will always be for it. Our party, the All African People's mm -hmm. Revolutionary Party, has been calling for a black united front, the meetings of all black people, irrespective of ideology, once we, we want our people free. Thus, it's left. For example, I think this is very beautiful. It's unfortunate we can't get this unless someone calls us to be on mm -hmm. TV. But uh, I've always been for that. I learned that from Dr. King and from Malcolm X. The newest Black Power Conference, of course, 67 and all the rest since then have indicated the same kind of thing. May we have Tony, a response from Mr. Sutton? The question I believe phoned in was whether or not uh, one agreed with the philosophy that uh, racism, white racism is an anger on the part of whites because they're not black. I don't think that at all. I quite agree with my sister, Angela Davis, that um, racism is really a matter of exploitation. It's an economic thing. And whether it's in South Africa or South United States or Northern United States, it is a method of exploitation. And the exploitation does not really benefit the whites. That is not the white working class. Uh, maybe I did disservice in, uh, and I'm, I'm sure I did now, in uh, recalling the theory because what Dr. Welsing said was that race was the dynamic around which the political and the social system was organized to oppress blacks. Uh -huh. 
well, that, that makes a certainly, difference. Yes. That does yeah. make a difference. Yes, it does yes. make yes. a difference. Yes. Okay, can we have a short remark and then take the next question? Nelson. Yeah, uh, my comment was on the, on the same question. Uh, and I think it's, it's important in terms of the solution or the approach to solving the problem, you know, created by racism, that we come to some clarification again on what it is and where it come from. Uh, and I'm referring to, to again, to, to Stokely's comments about, um, you know, that perhaps was, was not central. And I'm saying that you can't really devise uh, a strategy uh, to begin to deal with the problem of racism in the society without a comprehension of its source because uh, and why it's there, where it comes from, the, the motive forces that created it. And again, I think that leads us back to what Angela said uh, as a point of departure, you know, in our efforts to, to dismantle racism. All right. Next question, please. Robert Alexander, San Antonio, Texas. Is it possible to persuade existing black organizations to assign appropriate staff from each of these organizations to convene and develop for presentation a cogent list of priorities, would it be possible once this list of priorities has been developed to utilize the network of organizational units such as NACP, Urban League, SCLC, uh, CORE, so forth, and the black colleges in this country to verify this list of priorities as being relevant to our cause and then to rally the blacks in this country to begin promoting the activities at the local, state, and national level to culminate as the national agenda by 1976 the 200th anniversary of the birth of our country. Uh, I'll re uh, difficulty hearing, I will restate his question. Is it possible to persuade existing black organizations to assign appropriate staffs from each of these organizations to convene and develop for presentation a cogent list of priorities? Would it be possible once this list of priorities has been developed to utilize the network of organizational units such as in AACP, Urban League, SCLC, CORE, so forth, and the black colleges in this country to verify this list of priorities and being relevant to our cause, and then to rally the blacks in this country to begin promoting the activities at the local, state, and national levels to culminate as a national agenda by 1976, the 200th anniversary of the birth of our country. Congressman Stokes, would you stab at that? I think the gentleman's suggestion has merit. What he is, in effect, talking about uh, is coalitions within the black community itself. When we talk politically of being able to acquire a real political power, we talk in terms of coalitions, where you put uh, white people, black people, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, uh, white liberals, four uh, whites all together, and you, through this process you acquire political power. And it seems to me that uh, when you talk in terms of being able to form coalitions between the races, obviously you ought to be able to form a coalition within the race in terms of, of unity for the race. So I think the gentleman has, uh, has merit and that it could well be explored. Isn't that what we've been doing through the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights? Although it's kind of failed, it seems, in recent years. Also in the Black Political Assembly, and uh, there are other attempts that have been made. 
Uh, I think what he's saying is that uh, we've got to make it work, and uh, that's our function. As I said, he's, he's asking for uh, something, I, I think, a little more sophisticated than what has presently been attempted, and that is uh, to come up with the priorities and then put it in the hands of people who are professional <coughs> thinkers and then establish the priorities and then come back to the leadership, organizational leadership, and have a goals and, mm -hmm. and objects for 1976 to, to some sophisticated We've been having national goals and national priorities prepared since Niagara Conference to Gary. And I think the basic kinds of issues that the black and poor community is faced with, everybody accepts as priorities. So if we're talking about make that a national goal for 1976, they have been the national goal at least since I've understood. Well, are you satisfied with the, with the implementation of these goals? Uh, no, absolutely not satisfied with the implementation, not even satisfied with the approach to them. Uh, what I think we should avoid doing, however, though, is getting ourselves in another study bag where we go back and come back with data and what happened, and we sit down and all agree that those are the problems. But he gives a cutoff date. He says 1976. I'd like to give it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> there are very few holes in his question. My, my concern is that the cutoff date is yesterday or tomorrow. Well, in, in, in terms of realism, in terms of realism, we have not solved our problems but, to this date. And he's something. asking for black leaders and black organizations to give him some plan. But, and give him some date for completion of this work. Let, let, let me address, let me address <laughs> one very important point, though. Uh, the Gary Convention came out with a set of, uh, of listed priorities, whether we agreed or disagreed, they, those conditions existed in certain places. The Congressional Black Caucus, who after a number of exhausted hearings involving all parts of, of community thinking, came down also with a list of priorities, which was addressed to the National Congress in their State of the Nation, uh, uh, message, I believe, in the earlier part of the Congress. Now, anybody who takes a look at what was said there recognizes these to be problems. Uh, I don't see the need to have some sort of convening again of black leadership. Well, I mean, me, part uh, of our problem, Tony, yeah. is that we traditionally convene leadership and, and forget to convene people. All right, let, me, let, let me be the devil's advocate. Here we are sitting, and perhaps some of you feel a little nervous about being called leaders, but you are, uh, because the term has been stigmatized, and I can understand it. But let's be practical. Here is Mrs. Hamer, who is in the, the middle of Mississippi. They have a, uh, a farm corporation. Uh, their farmland, their cotton is underwater. They're starving. Now, what actually do organizations do specifically? One, two, three, four. Do you send four loaves of bread and, 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 and two, uh, two ham hocks? Uh, do you go down? And, I mean, in, in terms of saying, well, yes, it's, it, the, our, our brothers and sisters in the rural South are starving. That's an abstract. Now, what do we do? How do we move from nothing to one? This is, I think, the substance of what this brother is asking. I, I just don't see it not being a legitimate concern. When I'm saying, let's talk about a disaster situation, and we talk about the federal government as the institution to relieve that disaster, our local government. What I'm saying is that is, there is a clear procedure to follow in that situation. For instance, our illustrious leader has declared certain parts of it a disaster area, so fine. The machinery of, of the Red Cross or whoever cranks up and does but something. But if they had been Jews, the, the national Jewish community would have fed them. Israel would have aided them. This is, and we say on one hand that we can't, we can't depend on the federal government. Then when, it, when a black person's in trouble, no, no, no. we say the federal government should do something. I think another You're point in terms the point of our past experience with uh, disaster areas, and I think that perhaps we can advance the discussion a little further using this example, is that in the past, when we have had disaster areas in the South, Mississippi in particular, the federal government has acted in a discriminatory fashion in administering disaster aid. And one of the things that was needed then was close monitoring by a concerned black community right. 
by skilled black people to go in and at first uh, address the immediate problems that the people had, but as well to make the, the federal government live up to the standards that it enunciated for itself. Not only that, I think that many times we don't understand that unity is a struggle. Because uh, when the black man tries to unify, it is obvious and expected and understood that the white power structure of this country does not want that to happen. Thus, they move in many different ways, not overt, but rather covered to keep the black people divided. Thus, we have a responsibility. You know, if we tried last year and we didn't do it, we tried the year before, we tried. We will keep trying because we got to do it. We got to do yeah, it. Yeah, what is the alternative? And the other question is that on the question of leaders versus people, it is just a simple systematic way of organizing. You represent the state, county, federal, municipal employees. That's a large number of black people in this country and, and other people, okay? But a large number of black people, undeniably so. You represent that sector. Uh, Brother Nelson represents Yobu, which is an organizing group that's all over the country. That's, that's a sector that he represents. Uh, the Honorable uh, Percy Sutton, our brother here, represents Harlem. That's a fact. Brother Stokes represents a constituency in Ohio. That's a fact. If these people sit down and come together, they will create an atmosphere in which your constituency, his constituency, his constituency, will now be inspired to come together. Thus, we have to understand what it's about. Just bringing the leaders together is to set an atmosphere of unity. Because when, when your constituency, when Brother Sutton's constituency, when Brother Stokes' constituency, look up to those who they see as national leaders, they see them divided. Thus, it demobilizes them. But if they saw us in constant contact, they would be inspired. And thus, we would speed up the process of organizing the very people. Just one second. I think what is important, we understand, I was not saying... Could we make our remarks short? I was not saying that leaders should not come together. My concern is to not become bogged down in four or five years of trying to determine priorities. For instance, when the administration came in with their wage price guidelines, more wage control, that was an instant kind of thing that poor people were confronted with. Not rich people, not doctors, not bankers, where interest rates, profits, but wages. I'm saying we've got to be prepared to deal with that. For instance, the, the power hunks in the country immediately moved steel workers, auto workers, Whoever was necessary to relieve the pressure from their people, they could move to get themselves exempted or excluded. We must be unified. It's not necessary to be unified. We must be powerful. All right, thank well, you. you're going to get power from unity. All right, all right. Brother Sutton, Tony, only way we're going to get yes. it. Tony, right. you pointed out just then with regard to the Jewish community that had there happened within the realm of the interest of the Jewish community that which happens, and you're mentioning in Mississippi to Fannie Lou Hamer, there would have been a different response we're talking about monitoring the federal government in what it gives. And the Jewish community would have been talking about monitoring the federal government in what it gives, but also in themselves doing something. We have not reached that point in our development. And it goes back to what Angela Davis has said. It is all economic. Because until we're able to organize ourselves in whatever movement we have, whatever philosophies we have, to move economically, to structure the brother or sister. The brother or sister is not going to listen to you or to any of us unless we can change the condition of his life, either create a socialist system for him or make his life better in the capitalist would system. You, uh, would you accept the Nation of Islam as an example of that? As an example of what? Uh, as an example of uh, blacks developing the, the second statement in your analysis. Yeah, I think, let me just say this, I think the Nation of Islam moves towards what I should like to see. It moves towards doing something 
for the economic side of black people. Unfortunately, it has not had the impact many of us would wish it would have. And I guess the reason it has not had that impact is because there are not yet a sufficient number of believers. I think Charles and Mary Beard said many years ago the problem with regard to the white work in America is that it was not sufficiently class conscious. I think the problem with black people in America is that we're not sufficiently class conscious. We still keep believing that we're going to make it in the system. Yes, Brother Williams. Yes, yes, uh, the problem of, um, I want to get back to that question, the problem of setting pro priorities or developing a, a national black agenda, I don't think is a difficult one for black people and black groups. I think that the difficult difficulty lies whenever we began our attempt to implement these agendas and priorities. And here is when our ideological differences began to interfere with our ability to function as a collective group. Now, the question also of unity, I think that we must understand that we're, uh, we are a large group of people, something like 40 to 50 million in this country, and there are going to always be differences of opinion. I think our primary concern should be developing some kind of mechanism for operational unity. In other words, when we come up with that national black agenda, uh, with those uh, priorities, then we, despite our different ideologies, should have that kind of mechanism that would embrace all these ideologies so that we can implement the, the national black agenda. And I think that here where we break down as a collective group, and that, is, that can be clearly seen right now in terms of our different political ideologies. Now, for instance, uh, uh, we are constantly uh, uh, loyal to the Democratic Party. We are constantly dampering with the Republican Party. Uh, we are constantly, uh, uh, we are maintaining a permanent coalition with the white racist union that, that is one of our greatest enemies in this particular country in terms of keeping black people out of the union and subsequently keeping them unemployed. And I think as black people, you see, if we were to come together, it would be a big <coughs> argument as to where our loyalty should lie. It would not be uh, uh, with uh, our black goals and objectives be because of these various uh, uh, attachments that we have. And I think that until we develop to the point where our loyalty will be with black people, and we, uh, in terms of our affiliation, any other group, we see that as a tactic and a strategy and do not let this deter us, I think we would be more effective in implementing uh, right. the concept We of must move on. We are, we are running short of time, and I will plead one more time for us to please make our remarks very cogent uh, and, and, and not get into it, <laughs> because I know all of you have a very gifted in this respect. Uh, Congressman Stokes, would you care to comment? No, I just wanted to add one additional uh, point to what uh, my brother here has said. Someone a few moments ago mentioned uh, the Jewish people. Now, they may differ ideologically or philosophically about many things. The one thing they all agree upon is Israel. And it seems to me there's a lesson in that for black people. That's not true. Okay, but all right. That's not true. That's not true. Very few disagree. May we, okay. Very few disagree. May we have a comment from him? And then I think you disagree. I think we do. Very few disagree. That's right. I think we do owe it to those who have phoned in questions to try to handle those questions out of courtesy. So could we very expediently move toward that? And Mr. Williams, you've been trying to make a point. Just one point that I hope your viewers don't get the impression uh, from what's been said so far, that there is no cooperation in the black community. You know, uh, because I think, you know, that they might feel that way, that all of us are doing our own thing and we, you know, we never relate to one another. 
And uh, I've got and says, you know, that, uh, that we do cooperate, that we do form coalitions. So, you know, so, you know, it isn't as splendid as it might appear. Now, if we don't form coalitions, one has been formed for us. <laughs> well, yeah, that's by word. That's what I mean. That's trouble. Many times we think we've got something going, and the buck that has caused us to uh, get into those hotels and have those uh, uh, meetings and caucuses and the seminars and all the rest has come from the white community uh, without our knowledge sometimes, uh, without the knowledge of some of us. And so, therefore, the conference takes the uh, takes a tack that is totally different uh, and, and also splits us up, too, because of our ideologies. It makes us think about ourselves as being different. We're not. Uh, we've got a great deal to work with. We're going to have one short remark from Ms. Burrell, and then we'll go to the next question. I think, I think one of the things that needs to be said, Tony, is the fact that political power and the ownership of capital seem somehow to be handmaidens. I think we agreed. Mm -hmm. I think I've heard that about four times here. Well, if that's true, then uh, you decide which one of those comes first. I'm sure that you'd better have some money before, before the political power comes. I think that's what uh, the congressman talked about a little bit earlier. Little old ladies in tennis shoes that, that get 20,000 votes for a candidate don't, very, don't have access to him. But some guy that gave $20,000 does, and, and that's the difference. And it comes as a result of the ownership of business. And it, uh, if, uh, if, uh, if we're talking about the ownership of capital, then, uh, then that gets to be important. And all capitalists don't have to own a little grocery store. I mean, there's a broad middle class in this country. They're not capitalists. Okay. Well, they're they, not capitalists. Mr. Sutton said they could get, it, they could get to see him. <laughs> okay, thank you. Right, may we have the next question, please? My name is Martha Dorsey. I live in San Francisco. And my question was, with the war ending in Vietnam, and unemployment, the rate of unemployment <laughs> climbing as it has. Does anyone on the panel see a possibility of race riots occurring across the country? Uh, the question was, uh, with the war in Vietnam ending and unemployment, I assume, rising, uh, yeah, the rate of unemployment climbing as it has, does anyone see the possibility of race riots occurring across the country? Certainly. Certainly. The potential is here. Uh, we've put all this money for so many years into Vietnam, fighting a war in a place that we shouldn't be fighting, intervening in a um, civil, dis I'm sorry, a uh, civil, civil disagreement is really what it is there, <coughs> and yet doing nothing to structure people as they come back here, grand unemployment with the Nixon administration leading in an attitude to continue to do nothing, cutbacks all along the line, right here in the city of New York just recently, uh, I think we might have had a riot where a policeman shot a 10-year-old boy in the back. There was great disorder in the vicinity of the house in which the youngster lived. Now, if the Nixon administration continues its cutback, and had this been summertime when that youngster was shot in the back, I think you might have found a riot well, let me, right here in let New me, York. Let me clarify the fine language of this question. And the question says, race riots. It doesn't, it, we, we, this question doesn't say, the rebellions of the 60s in which blacks were burning up their own houses and you know uh, robbing liquor stores no, this no, is let me let me carry to right. uh, let me respond to that uh, i don't think if we have riots again i think blacks are much more sophisticated than we were in the early 60s and much more bold than we were in the early 60s and i don't think the disorders are going to be confined to black communities 
There are a lot of brothers and sisters who are much more bold than before who will carry the disorders, if we want to term them that, into the white community, to the downtown banks, to the, <laughs> where the power structure is. Yes, I think there's a grand possibility of disorder and race riots. Me, I, well, I would hope not. Well, I think that we have a responsibility <laughs> because no doubt the atmosphere is that we have a responsibility to construct that, 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 that consciousness right. that will now rise and to guide it in whatever channels we see, irrespective of whether we say we're violent or nonviolent. I think we do have a responsibility to, to try and channel that. Right, because while we can well, agree on an increase in racism, I, mean, know, I, think, I have... think it would be inappropriate to, to draw the conclusion that that will manifest itself in race riots, and in fact, there are many it becomes forms. our responsibility to work to make sure it does not. Let's see if I understood the question whether there was a possibility. Yes. And yes. my answer, yes, was a possibility. Well, oh, I agree with you. Oh, as, yeah. as related to unemployment, we have an obligation. Right. Of course, we a responsibility. Right. A responsibility right. to channel it. Now it can take different forms. All right, gentlemen, Mrs. Mrs. It's, Hamer. It's things that I really don't understand about that war because I've never seen the war end and people still shoot them. Now, I don't understand that. You know, when they make that clear to me, then I, I really want somebody to clarify that because, and number two, I couldn't understand why so many black men were sent over there to fight and everybody I seen talking that got off of them plans was white men. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of things mm -hmm. that I don't understand about that. You know, and, um, well, you know, this is enough to make people upset because that upset me. That upset other people because I do know that it was more than uh, white people went to Vietnam. And I know that, you know, somebody else should have been, you know, it was two, it was two things that, that really upset a lot of people in the South. And uh, I can't understand if the war is over and the prison at home, why they see a shoot. I think the point is clear. The war in Southeast Asia is still going on, and, but as well, there is now uh, an increased war here at home in terms of the conditions that people are having to live under and the conditions that returning veterans are having to face. Uh, as part of the National Conference of Black Lawyers, I, I traveled in, in Asia very recently and talked to many of the black servicemen and women in the brigs and the stockades and in the courts and talked to them in their barracks. And I checked out as well the situation here in the United States, people who are about to be re released under uh, administrative discharges and the whole range of less than honorable discharges that the system has uh, put upon these people. And I think that not only do we have to take uh, Sister Hamer's point about the war going on in Southeast Asia, there's a war going on right here in the United States in terms of the conditions that these people are going to have to face when they come out and the kind of, of lives that they're going to be forced to live. And I think that has implications not only for the black community, but for the entire American community. I think I mean, I'd just like to say to Ms. Hamer that, one, that that war was going on when we got there. They were shooting when we got there, and now that we've left, they're still shooting. And I wish we'd left that part out that, that comes in between. I wish we'd never join the shooting, and let's let them keep on shooting like they're doing now. It's we're... capitalism that sent us Okay, thank you. Okay, well, I can't. <laughs> Next question, please. Well, Mrs. I didn't do it, <laughs> Mrs. Hamer's point is that they have not really left. Maybe we have the next question, please. Still there. My name is Ronald Woodson. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Question is, I want to know, would it be feasible and would it be much more beneficial to black people if we had, as we say we have, a home to call our own, like Africa, like we could relate to our brothers in Africa as do the Jews do to Israel? Would this give us more of a nation time feeling than the direction we are now presently taking in this country? 
I think, Mr. Carmichael, we're all waiting on you to answer that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. My brother, I thank you. <laughs> Africa is our home. Africa is our mother. Undeniably, it is our home. I think that we get confused, uh, and that's why uh, our struggle becomes so confused, because a nationalist pre-awakening is a necessity for anti-imperialist struggle. All, all countries go through their nationalist stage before they go into that serious, the Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Cubans. And our problem is that we don't really understand nationalism. When you say nation, you talk about land. Our land is Africa. That's undeniable. This land is not our land. This land is not our land. This land is not the white man's land. He's just a European settler on this land. This land is the red man's land. And the red man will raise contradictions to get his land back. And when he does, black people have to be crystal clear what our position is. The, 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 the red man fighting in, in, in wounded knee right now, our position can only be but one. We support him to reclaim his land, while we also wage our struggle to take back our land. Now, the way people now ask the question is, well, uh, uh, Brother Stokely, uh, 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 what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to leave America and go to Africa? I think that's an incorrect way of phrasing the question. Once we understand that Africa is our home, then the way we raise the question is, Brother Stokely, I'm in America. What can I do to help home? Right. Now, once the question is raised that way, then we see it more clearly. But it's undeniable that when you fight revolution, you fight for land. Thank you. you fight for land. Very few minutes. I'm going to try to get to another question. Uh, next question, please. My name is Deidre Carter, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And my question is on census taking and the fact that from 1900 to 1970, according to the World Almanac, the Negro Almanac, and census, why we have still remained 10% to 11% of the total population, and exactly who is the minority on a national and an international scale. Thank you very much. Uh, this, she was asking, uh, in, in essence, uh, are we the minority or the majority on an international scale? Well, I know it's right here where we are. We're in the minority, but we may be a, as a part of a black people and brown people in worldwide. the majority worldwide. I think. Next Even question, if black please. people, we're with the majority. We I have think we have time people. for one more question. We have a very few seconds. My name is uh, Osoro Lewis. You got that? Yes. <laughs> and one of the questions is directed to uh, Stokey Carmichael. Yeah, I Which is, how can you be in Africa and America at the same time? Now could you answer that very succinctly? I'm sure there's a very, very short simply, answer to that. Very simply. When I was in Africa for the last four years, my mother was in America and she was in Trinidad. But she's my mother. I have a responsibility to take care of her. I took care of my mother wherever she was. For my brother, I would tell him that he should read the works of the Honorable Marcus Garvey. And he will see that the Honorable Marcus Garvey never saw Africa, never saw it. Yet it is undeniable that the Honorable Marcus Garvey worked harder for Africa than any man in his lifetime during that period. And he never saw uh, America. We have a few seconds. Uh, Angela, let me ask you, uh, what is your involvement now in, uh, in the political prisoner uh, movement specifically? We have about a half a minute. Well, we are trying to build a movement embracing all of those thousands and tens of, the, tens of thousands who supported me as well as anybody else who can see the need to free more political prisoners and victims of political repression. Uh, we're talking about fighting around the case of Rochelle McGee, the San Quentin Six, uh, 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 Carlos Feliciano, Rap Brown right here in New York. I was uh, visiting 
Just Andrew, a few days to... ago, Rochelle McGee in San Quentin. I hate to interrupt you. I feel like a bad guy on this program, but it's been very interesting, and uh, I'm sure the audience has gotten some tremendous insights. Black Journal would like to thank you for coming and giving us your ability and your wisdom. Well, we thank you for helping to bring us together. If even on this level, it will now inspire us to work harder to uni unite amongst ourselves. Amen, brother. <laughs> Joining us at TruthWorks Network, we reload the truth. Learn, listen, liberate, talk radio. Join us on TruthWorks Network, reloading the truth. TruthWorks Network. Ah!